You've got 10 seconds. The countdown going on right now. I'm sorry, I'm not doing it the wrong way. This is Play by Play Cast, the world's number one sports media podcast. Wait, what? Nobody's fact checking it, just keep going. Here we go. Who the hell is Happy Gilmore? Got all that on camera, right, John? Sure, I did. All right, because the red light was not on. The podcast about play by play broadcasters for play by play broadcasters, hosted by a play by play broadcaster. Oh, you can stick me in some kind of Italian boat because that one is Gondola. Now, from New York. Really? All the big ones are from New York. Your host, Joe Godet. It's still Joel. Yeah, he will not be able to see very well, Cotton. Midweek podcast alert. Welcome back into Play by Playcast, everybody. My name is Joel Godet. This is the podcast about play by play broadcasters for play by play broadcasters, hosted by a play by play broadcaster. It's a professional development podcast that dives into the tips, tricks, experience, stories, process, and preparations of some of the biggest and best play by play announcers in the business on social media at PXPCast. I'm at Joel Godet, or shoot me an email, J-G-O-D-E-T-T at B-S-U for Ball State University at B-S-U dot E-D-U. Episode 178 was Glenn Geffner last Friday. If you have not caught one of the voices of the Miami Marlins, please do go back and check that one out. Episode number 179 today is with Emma Tiedemann. She's supposed to be the double-A voice of the Portland Sea Dogs. Her first season with the Sea Dogs of the Eastern League, although... We will find out when exactly minor league baseball will happen in our current situation. We'll get to Emma here in just a second, but wanted to touch on, you know, I've done a lot of self-review and a lot of sending out tapes and banging heads together with a lot of people um, about their thoughts and some of the stuff I've done. I've gotten a chance to listen to a lot of tapes as well. Uh, some folks have sent stuff my way, so, so thanks for doing that. Uh, if you have, and if you haven't, I don't know what I can tell you, but feel free. One of the things that's been interesting, that's been a pretty constant in conversations I've had with folks, is, you know, what separates people in this business? It's being yourself. And I think so often, we worry about, what do I need to do to have a better call? And fundamentally, how can I call this play better? How can I set my analyst up better? What page in which chapter of the book do I find this piece of information that will make me better and that will force a network to have to hire me or a school to have to hire me or a team to have to hire me. And what's been interesting is from a couple of voices that that I really respect, it's been this idea of just be yourself. It's not, and like, yes, at the end of the day, you can call a play better and that is a good thing. And that will turn certain heads, but being yourself is the thing we always overlook. Like it's, it's, it is the forest that we're looking through to find the trees. Like there's only one Sean McDonough and there's only one Ian Eagle and there's only one Glenn Gaffner and there's only one Spiro Ditas. There's only one Emma Tiedemann, our guest today. Uh, those roles are taken. Like as much as you might want to be the next Jim Nance, like, there isn't one. There's the next you, and that's you. There's only one Jim Nance. And, and that is just, like, it seems like a simple thought. But when you take a step back, I think we get lost in it a lot. One other interesting piece of advice I got in the past week was we live in this day and age where, as part of being yourself, we talk about 
developing a brand. Like, don't forget to make yourself a brand. And and for a lot of people, that's a really good and big thing. Like Pat McAfee, hashtag for the brand. Like the man is a brand, and he has done a phenomenal job of promoting himself, and that's part of a he's good but part of why he is where he is is because he has developed this brand about himself but i feel like as part of that and as as part of finding out who we all are we all wind up in this never-ending search to be something i need a brand i need to be something i need to be creative on social media i need to be catchy i need to come up with the next thing that's going to go viral I need to have the it call. I need to have the great catchphrase. I need to, people need to come to me for this. And we, like, we overthink it so much because on, on social media, we have to be a brand. But this goes back to just being who you are. Because if you have to work at that to a certain degree, then it's not who you are. If you just go out there and be who you are, let the rest of it develop naturally. Like, the Pat McAfee brand works for him. I've never met the guy, but I'm just assuming that's who he is. (laughs) And that all comes and gets built because that's who he is. And it's all offshoots of his personality. Don't set out, or don't feel like you have to set out every day, particularly now in this time where all we have is time to think about it, saying, today I'm going to think about developing my brand i feel like ultimately what we should be doing is being who we are and the best of who we can be and let that carry you and through that you'll both be your own unique personality which will be attractive to networks teams and and schools and you'll also find out what that brand is without actively sitting at a desk and writing it out and trying to figure it out. Because in that process, you're only going to drive yourself nuts and maybe ultimately create nothing. But when you let it happen organically, that's where your ultimate goal lies and is realized. Um, Not to be like too sage and soapboxy and, you know, preachy, but over the last week or so, it's one of those things where I've just heard a bunch and it, when you hear the same thing on repeat, um, you kind of start to connect some some different dots in your own mind and, and create some sort of constant thread. And I know that's what a lot of times we look for in conversations that we have with others. So I wanted to share that with you guys uh, off the top here. Emma Tiedemann is our guest today. Uh, her grandfather has been on this podcast before. The great Bill Mercer, he has his own mafia of broadcasters from uh, North Texas, where Craig Way and Ted Emmerich and Dave Raymond, they, they, I mean, they're all disciples of the Bill Mercer School of Broadcasting. And you can go back and listen to Bill's episode. It's funny because one of the things Bill says is he hates the word get. Gets a first down. He gets buckets. He gets a foul. He hates it because there are better words. He picks up a first down. He scores a bucket. He's charged with a foul. It's a lazy descriptor. What's funny about it is every time I listen back to my tape now, whenever I say the word gets, I cringe. Cringe. Because I do it. 
And I've never met Bill Murr, so I've only had a conversation with him on this podcast and uh, a couple of weeks ago when he called me <laughs> because because he was listening back to the podcast. It was a really cool conversation that I did not expect. It was a lot of fun. In only those two encounters, the man's voice is in my head every time I hear the word gets. So uh, it's funny to me because that's the impact he has had on me, uh, even just from doing this podcast. Uh, we will talk about Bill Mercer's influence on his granddaughter in this podcast and on the word gets uh, and her not wanting to use it. But Emma Tiedemann is a, a good broadcaster in her own right, starting her double A broadcasting career, hopefully this season, with the Portland Sea Dogs. Prior to that, she was with the Lexington Legends of the uh, Class A South Atlantic League. She's a former intern of Sean Aronson with the St. Uh, St. Paul Saints and host of The Voice Behind the Voice, a podcast in the similar space. So a lot of topics to dive into. We start with <laughs> becoming the voice of a new team in the midst of a global pandemic and starting in the new office and saying hi and then working from home. That is where this episode begins with Emma Tiedemann here on PXPCast. It is sort of surreal. Uh, you know, you, you get a new job that you really wanted and you're taking the next step in your career and you move to a new part of the country and you're told your first day that we're going to start working from home <laughs> and there's no opening day set yet. So um, it was a, it was a little disheartening, um, but, you know, it's a little bit bigger than us all right now and everyone's safety is kind of paramount just to make sure we even have a season. So kind of understand, but uh, but it was a little a little discouraging to say the least. <laughs> what do they have you doing working from home? <laughs> um, so I'm looking to hire a, an assistant broadcaster, number two right now. So uh, I'm going to start lining up those interviews for, for different candidates. Um, I'm just getting my game notes ready, uh, building out stat packs, just making sure when we do have an opening day um, date set, then I'll just be ready to rock and roll and, uh, you know, brush up on everything Red Sox baseball and and kind of have a good good foundation there also. Yeah, probably figuring out who players are in a brand new league. I know they rotate every year, but completely new crop of people, most likely for you. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I got very familiar with the Kansas City Royals farm system, uh, so I know them like the back of my hand. And but, they're all you know, gone, right? I don't think you're not in that league, right? Right, yeah. right. So so now this is a whole different league, like you said, and so a lot, a lot of new things to learn. If only Northwest Arkansas could move into the Eastern League, you would be brilliantly prepared. Um, oh, yeah. At least for one team. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> tell me a little bit about, I, I know the story of how you got into broadcasting when you were 15 and, and you went to uh, a game with your grandfather and put on the headset and he told you you could talk if you wanted and kind of the rest was history from there. Um, but take me back before that and what it was like growing up the granddaughter of Bill Mercer and what you thought of broadcasting, like if the thought had ever occurred to you, if you ever thought about how cool it was to be your grandfather like what was the process before you were 15 and you decided it was for you um of the role that this this industry played in your life well i mean growing up with him it was it was going to to a lot of baseball games uh, he was you know kind of he was pseudo retired so he would still call minor league games for the frisco rough riders or the round rock express with my cap so um, so I would occasionally go into different press boxes and, and broadcast booths and just kind of see it from afar. And then, you know, hear his stories about the ice bowl and having to use the, you know, de-icer just to get their, their, uh, breasts off the window, um, in the broadcast booth and, and different things like that. I always 
viewed myself as either, you know, wanting to play in the WNBA one day, or I loved animals. So for being a vet, you know, those were kind of my They're very ideas. close. They are, they are yeah. very similar. Yeah. Um, and so it turns out I was really bad at biology and, and math and science and my knees weren't good enough to take me even to collegiate basketball. So, um, so I think it was when I was probably in junior high that I was kind of maybe like, Oh, well, I could probably talk about this for a little bit. Um, but it, I mean, it all changed when I was 15 on, on that first game. Um, what is it like to be Bill Mercer's granddaughter? It's, it's kind of awesome. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, he's, he's such a fantastic mentor, not only to myself, but to countless other broadcasters across the country. Um, and so just having that support system of what he calls the Mercer Mafia um, of, you know, different broadcasters that sometimes I haven't even met them in person, um, but they know of me because he's a very chatty person and, and likes to send his emails about my career updates to everyone. Um, but to have that kind of support system that I never really could have could have imagined um, that would supply me just being his granddaughter and, and wanted to pursue this. Um, it's, it's really been fantastic. And not to mention, you know, I have a critique waiting for me, right. whether it's a text message, a call or an email after every single broadcast I do. So that was my question, because oftentimes like the cliche thing to ask an athlete when they play for their their mom or dad as a coach is like, well, what's it like to like, do they critique you in a certain way or like what kind of conversations do you have about with a, a famous parent who played the sport about how you just played? Um, is it intimidating? Like, do you, is, we always want to have the best broadcast possible, but is there like an extra level of if I don't do this well, I'm going to hear about it when I when I get home type deal? Um, a little bit. Um, I will say it did take us a little while to kind of get that rapport of knowing that I was going to be critiqued every single game and kind of have that criticism of, uh, you know, that line of, all right, I know what I did wrong and we don't have to harp on it kind of thing. <laughs> and now we're at the point where, uh, you know, he'll give me little things to work on. And, you know, if I just have, you know, you just have one of those nights where you just think that everything goes wrong. You know, I can text him before he even gets the chance to call me and I'll just say, I know it was terrible. Just let's forget about this, you know. So now we, we kind of have that uh, that back and forth. But, uh, you know, sometimes if I do mess up a call, I'll just shake my hand, my head and just, you know, expect a text message. <laughs> like, well, I know it's coming on this one. <laughs> what are the types but, of things that you hear about most? Like what what gets under his skin in a, in a good way from a constructive criticism way? Uh, well, the number one thing, or I guess there's two top things that I've I've consciously worked on because his pet peeves are talking in the in future tense. Um, whenever there's something happening right in front of you in the present, um, so using the word will um, was you know one of his pet peeves of of you know you're not talking in present or in future tense. It's all happening right now and unfolding in front of you. Um, so that was one of the big ones. And then uh, the word get. I was thinking um, that before you said it. <laughs> yep. He, he hates that word. Um, and you know, you can really substitute any verb for the word get just to add that further kind of description of what's going on. So those are my two things that I, I still consciously work on. And then of course, you know, the score and letting people who might've just tuned in 
know, you know, what's unfolding. And then in the later, whether it's the innings or if you're doing a basketball game, you know, final minutes of the game, um, building the suspense and using the tone of your voice to build that as well. Um, not necessarily getting louder, but just using more intensity um, and the tone of your voice to, you know, really get across that something important is happening. You're coming down to the last minutes or, or innings of the ball game. I forget who said it. Uh, he's been on this podcast, so I think it might have been him. If it wasn't, it was definitely Ted Emmerich um, who brought up the thing about the word gets. And it's funny because yep. I, I used the word gets in asking you that question, and it's and it, it rung in my brain for a second. Um, well, Ted, Ted learned that from my grandfather. <laughs> Ted was a, a former student of, of Bill Mercer. Where are the where are the, like have you like will you physically sit down and have you thought about other ways to avoid saying that? Um. So. Sort of what I started doing whenever he was really harping on me a few years ago about it when I was just starting out, um, I would write get like in the corner of my scorebook and then mark it out and then list about five to seven different words that, you know, they might be more commonly used. So, so, you know, as a broadcaster, you want to spice up that vocabulary. But for me, I was just getting out of the habit of using the word get. So I would just write down a couple that I could quickly um, substitute instead of that word um, and focus on those. And then just just trying to get out of the habit of having get in my vocabulary at all. Do, do you use it anymore? Has it gone? It most for the most part, yes. And and if I do use it, I immediately regret it. <laughs> um, I also read an article that said you listened to Red Barber tapes growing up, which makes a lot of sense based on everything we just said. But uh, how often would you do that? Um, well, after I read his book, The Broadcasters, um, you know, as every other millennial, I, I took to YouTube and, um, <laughs> and and there's some some great kind of archival footage. And I was just fascinated with his routine um, that he would do at the ballpark each and every day. And then, uh, you know, his kind of, you know, the lack of technology, it's not like he was on radio, but still had a monitor in front of him to see what was unfolding um, with replays and stuff like that. So just kind of hearing, you know, just back to the basics and, uh, you know, the, the history that he saw unfold in, in front of him as well. Uh, so I just kind of listen to him every once in a while. Uh, I will, but then I'll, I'll read his book before every season. Um, what things did he do routine wise that you liked and that you picked up on? Um, well, I mean, honestly, it's just keeping the routine because, you know, in baseball and especially in right. minor league baseball, you know, a lot of things can come up all of a sudden and it can just completely throw you off your game. Um, so I, I try to come in a little bit early uh, to the ballpark just so I can have my routine, um, you know, just go through my motions that I need to do every single day. Uh, but, you know, he would read the paper front to back and um, talk with players and, and have his booth set up well before first pitch. Um, and that's also something that my grandfather instilled in me, too. He shows up at least two hours before every game. Um, and, you know, honestly, he'll just sit there if there's nothing to do or talk to players or, you know, it's just the, the idea of being prepared and ready to go. Um, it, you know, it was just an invaluable kind of uh, thing to go by. You also said in that quote that you you liked listening to Red Barber growing up and that you found yourself in a more traditional style like that, um, that era of broadcaster. Um what did that mean? And, and how do you view yourself as having a more traditional style? Um, I just kind of like to keep it to the basics. You know, I like to, to finish out plays and, and uh, you know, you'll, you'll hear some crazy calls from other broadcasters these <laughs> days of, you know, I don't even know where they come from. Um, but 
I, I just, you know, like to talk about what's unfolding in front of me and, and, you know, finish the play and, and, you know, back up these players with their stats and, and some stories about them as well. But, um, you know, I, I don't try to, to be too flashy as some people can be this, this time of, you know, broadcasting history. So, uh, just kind of keep it, you know, traditional and, and keep it basic. Yeah, team no home run call, by the way. That's my uh, – Yeah. I, I feel like I need yeah. to get a T-shirt for that. But people are like, what's your home run call? I'm like, I, I, don't, I don't have one. I don't I, have it. <laughs> I don't. Like, when it leaves, I tell you what it looked like. Right. Um, what is your preparation like? Because I've also seen where you said you like to have three to five talking points for every player. Is that accurate? Yeah, that is. So um, whenever I receive the rosters um, for for whatever team, both my team and, and the visiting team uh, or opposing team, I should say, uh, I go through and I Google each and every player and I go through Google News articles. Obviously, I'll have their stats, but um, I'll you know, if I find an article, uh, you know, for example, I had one for the legends. Um, our catcher went to Puerto Rico to help with hurricane relief. And um, so I would copy and paste kind of tidbits from that article onto a separate document. And so each player would have basically a page um, all to themselves of, of different backgrounds on who they are as a person. And then just last year, you know, I printed all those pages out. I put them in a binder and, and basically each team had a binder that, you know, had a whole page of information on each player that I could always, always go back and refer to. How often, well, how often are you referring to that? information and how often are you referring to information that you're getting on a more regular basis as you go through the season and statistical stuff, anecdotal stuff, things that come up as you just go about being around people? Well, I think that I rely pretty heavily on that, that kind of binder of information early on in the season. Um, but I mean, you know, as the season progresses and, and you have a lot more stuff that's, you know, maybe a little bit more timely, um, say in like June or July, I, I use that binder less and less. And also I, I get to know the, the players, um, you know, more personally, also just talking to them and, um, you know, doing that research also helps me remember who they are. And so I don't always have to refer to, to the binder and everything like that. So I would say, uh, by about August, you know, I'll, I'll refer to it once every other game, uh, you know, just because I'll have at that point so much more, you know, newer information to talk about. That's right. Because from the standpoint of like, you might love that hurricane story, but like how many times can you tell that, so to speak, if that makes, you know, and, and especially like, oh, yeah. how, how do you keep yourself away from, all right, it's a three game series and we're going to see you guys again next week. So six games over the next nine against Rome, um, how do you pick and choose your spots and and not overuse, underuse, not use that type of information that you're filing away? Um, that's a great question. I mean, it. I think it always depends on the game uh, that's in, unfolding because if you think about it, you know, the game could have a story within itself, whether right. it's a one-run game or a possible, you know, no-hitter. Well, you know, if it's a no-hitter, you're going to be talking more about the pitcher and what's going on versus, you know, what the catcher did a couple of years ago um, in Puerto Rico. So I think that that has a, a huge, uh, huge basis of, of what I'm going to use. And then, uh, you know, at that point too, if I, you know, happen to use everything in that first series, then, then I can always talk about the big league clubs as well. Cause that's always, you know, the athletic has, has given us great insight um, and articles and, and resources in that sense. So, you know, they, you know, I'll, I'll read a story about the Royals and how they, their bus got hit by an icicle or something while they're in Toronto, you know, like stuff like that, um, kind of at the broader scale at that point. 
Is that a real thing that happened, by the way? Yes, it is. Uh, <laughs> you can look it up on The Athletic. That must have been a large icicle to uh, yeah, necessitate a story. Um, what does your book look like? That always fascinates me from a baseball standpoint as far as um, – well, I guess first off, who do you use? Did you is it a score sheet you made up yourself that works better for you? And then, how do you organize what's in there versus what you know versus what's written in a binder or somewhere else? So I use uh, should be no surprise, but my grandfather uh, made one handwritten. I think when he was with the Texas Rangers, cool. um, and that's the one that I learned how to keep score on because he would just print out a bunch for us, and <laughs> and uh, that's how I kind of learned how to do it. Um, so every year I'll take it to, to office Depot or office max or whatever, and get it all binded together. Um, so through time and through technology, I've, you know, kind of used Photoshop to make it my own a little bit. Um, so it's not your Bob Carpenter kind of traditional thing. It, it does literally look like someone wrote with a pen, um, you know, batting average and that kind of stuff. But, um, I mean, looking at it, I have the field on the left and then the pitchers, uh, list and everything on the top right with their statistics as well. Um, and then just basically the, the nine hitters below. Um, and there are room, there's room in the margins to kind of write quick little things that I'll usually put you leave that for statistics, um, especially with the pitchers, um, their, their, you know, last game or, or hit streaks and that kind of stuff for the hitters. Um, so it's, it is kind of basic, I want to say, but you know, it, it does the job for me and, and I'm very familiar with it and comfortable with it. What's the key to using all of that appropriately and telling a good story? What is the, the what are the staples or the hallmarks you've found of the best storytelling in a baseball broadcast? I think that you, you um, I think that simplicity is almost best. Um, you know, you can do all this, this research and everything, and you can be overwhelmed with thinking, oh, I have these two great stories on each player that I want to get across, you know, through these nine innings. Well, you know, that's probably not going to happen because you're you're probably going to have a good game in front of you and you're going to be wanting to talk about the game more so than the players at some point. So I think it's, you know, just kind of keep it simple. And, and whenever you you feel comfortable, weave in those stories when applicable. I know it took me a, a pretty long time to kind of figure out the best balance of, you know, the play by play and mm. talking about the game and then talking about the stories and then, you know, add in the fact that I've been alone in the broadcast booth for, for quite a few years now um, and trying to balance that. I think that makes it a lot easier to weave in stories um, than whenever you have a partner to talk, you know, and bounce ideas off of. Um, but I, you know, I think that sometimes young broadcasters could just get overwhelmed with the amount of information that they have in front of them and, and just try and get it all in at one time. But, you know, you have three hours of talking to yourself to, to kind of, relay what you have in front of you so you know just kind of slow and steady and 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 kind of take your time do you uh have you had a partner at all as a as a professional like i i guess probably when you were in matsu doing collegiate baseball you did but since you made it into the minors i had a partner um, with the minors um he's now a, a news news anchor i think in west virginia now um uh, but I haven't had one since well since 2014 <laughs> um so it, it's been a while what do you like about that or what are the challenges that come with that? I selfishly, I love just kind of having my own show for lack of a better word of having complete control of the broadcast. I think that makes it easier for whenever, you know, I, I do think of stories that I want to tell and find out new information. I think that that gives me full reign to, to kind of have my own show. Uh, but then at the same time, you know, if it's a Wednesday day game and, 
the you know game is taking forever and it's a 10 run ball game um i would love to have another person to talk to <laughs> so so there's positives and negatives now i mean you were in lexington for the couple of years before this one and i think if i'm right on this there's no booth in lexington right you're just in the press box that's correct. So I guess, does it make it easier in that sense? Because, like, can you just turn to the person next to you and start talking to them, even though they don't have a microphone, but, like, have an audience in front of you that you're – does it make it easier to physically address a person as opposed to thinking of someone on the other end of a radio? A little bit. You know, I, I it was definitely intimidating my first couple of broadcasts with Lexington because, you know, I, I do get a little bit self-conscious sometimes. Do they whenever. like me? Yeah. yeah, exactly. I was like, oh, man, did I mess that one up? Um, so it is a little intimidating, but you know, we got to a, a certain point and, uh, you know, knowing the people that I was up there with, whether it was the DJ and the PA announcer and, you know, the track man and the whole crew up there was fantastic. So I would try and make it a point to, to kind of garner some sort of reaction out of them at some point in each game, um, just to kind of keep them on, on their toes and, and make sure I was still having an, uh, enter- entertaining broadcast. Yeah, it gives you that instant feedback of, all right, that was funny. Um, right. I read last year that you were working, you, you had a different type of focus going into stuff and you were working on pitches, grips, arm slots. Um, what about them? And um, well, let's start there. Like what about that or what types of things did you go into last year wanting to focus on from a broadcast standpoint? Um, I think that for me, it was finishing the play. Uh, you know, I, uh, you know, with extra base hits and that kind of stuff, I was wanting to focus on you know, following the ball, but also, you know, following what the base runner is doing and, and really, you know, hammering home what all was unfolding on the field at one time, whenever there was, you know, it was more than just a single to right field, you know, and when there was a little bit more to it. Um, so that was one thing that I was focusing on. And then, uh, you know, being with the, with no color person on with Lexington, wanting to really hammer home the color analyst aspect as well. What's your focus for this year? Um, probably the same, just probably just wanting to know everything I can about the Red Sox farm system. Um, I know that they're a very passionate fan base, and I just want to make sure that I can, um, you know, convey what's going on with them and, and what's coming up the, the minor league pipe. Tell me about the color analyst part of it. Like, what about, what did you want to learn? Like, was it being able to provide insight that a, that a true color analyst would provide, if that makes sense, like being able to, to talk the game differently. Cause I was like, for me, that was always something where like I played baseball at a very low level in high school and I understand pieces of it, but I'm not going to be able to break it down like a former player would. So I would always be interested to try to figure out how much can I learn as far as the game's intricacies and, and eccentricities. Um, was that one of the things where, Hey, I want to be able to talk the game a little bit better. So I think for me, it was definitely kind of providing a little bit more of a breakdown um, for for what what and why things are unfolding on the field. So, uh, you know, for example, like the pitchers and, and that kind of thing of why they might change their arm slot to deceive the hitters. Um, and we, we were provided a really great uh, pitcher this year with Chris Bubich for the Royals of, you know, his different little mannerisms that he would do pitching and just would fool batters left and right. So um, just kind of breaking it down a little bit more than just the the play-by-play and then just, you know, I want to get more than just at the surface of the color analyst thing. What is the challenge of doing that without getting too in the weeds? Like how, how did you best break that down to make it understandable for people in a 
um, condensed time. Well, I mean, it's baseball. You've got time. But so that the person's listening, their train of thought still made sense through the course of the game. So I would, you know, obviously, if you do your research, you kind of know what you're going to, you know, talk about. So if you're going to talk about arm slots, um, you know, I would I would kind of talk about it just off the air with people, um, you know, whether it was. Uh, with a coworker or with a friend and I would kind of look at their reaction and if they understood what I was saying, then I would think, okay, maybe my listeners could, uh, you know, understand it as well. But if they had more questions than I could answer, then I would think, okay, maybe I need to uh, change my delivery on, on how I explain this kind of thing. That's interesting. How, how often would you like test drive things that you would talk about? Um, honestly, I don't really know. It just kind of, if it would just come up, um, you know, I, and I would just drop little baseballisms. And obviously if you work in a front office, of minor league baseball, everyone's going to want to talk baseball, uh, for the most part. So, um, so I wouldn't tell them that I was kind of testing them. <laughs> um, it would just, I would just kind of throw it out there and, and kind of see their reaction. And if they would think, Oh, that's, that's interesting. I think, great. That will be used on air at some point. <laughs> that's really interesting. Um, cause one of the things we talk about a lot is like, how do you best frame stories? And like, do you think about how you're going to construct them, uh, before you use them on the air so that you can use them in a concise fashion? So I, you're the first person who's said, like, I've used them in conversation before just to see how people would respond. Um, so that's fascinating. Um, I want to, I want to ask you a little bit about it. I don't want to make a big deal of it. Um, but I want to ask you about being a woman in a field that has not been one that there have been a lot in recent years. Um, and for, first from the standpoint of, I know Beth Mowens is someone you've looked up to. Uh, what is it about her? And um, yeah, let's start there. What, what is it about her that you latched onto and, and why is she somebody that, that you looked up at? I think for her, it was just her ability to call games at a national level. Um, you know, and, she, and of course she would mostly make headlines every time she would make uh, but she was able to kind of keep grace under pressure. Um, you know, she was still able to to call a fantastic game and, and really get some great reviews after as well. Um, and knowing that the spotlight was on her, it never seemed to really shake her or really affect her. So I think that that was definitely something that I, I looked up to of, you know, oh, you can't be a woman and call an NCAA football game. And you can't be a woman and, and call an NFL game and, and still do a fantastic job, even though you have these people that might be, you know, against you on Twitter or whatever behind the keyboards. Um, but she still did a fantastic job. Uh, have you ever had the chance to talk to her? I have not, but she recently followed me on Twitter. So there I'm trying go. to get the courage to, to like <laughs> slide into her DMs. <laughs> Beth, I noticed that three weeks ago you followed me. Um, <laughs> right. Um, what, what, what would you want to talk? What would you want to pick her brain about? Um, just the best way to, to continue to move up in this career. Um, you know, I, I, I mean, I haven't obviously really even thought about what I would talk to her about. Um, uh, but you know, how to just kind of keep taking the next step, um, and, and, you know, achieve those goals and those dreams. And obviously she does softball too. So maybe just, you know, looking at the variety of different sports that are out there and, and just kind of trying to fill your year. What's been fun or difficult, about the attention that comes with, like there have been a lot of articles written about your meteoric rise through this industry. Um, what is exciting about that? What is the, is there pressure that comes along with that? Um, or is that just something you should want to accept anyway, because you should want to be your best no matter what? 
Um, so honestly, it was completely overwhelming. Um, <laughs> whenever I, I first was announced for Lexington, um, uh, that's kind of when this all started. Um, and I was, I was absolutely overwhelmed. I, I never have viewed myself as, you know, the groundbreaker, the trailblazer or anything like that. I just wanted to call baseball games. Um, and to kind of have that attention was just, that's just not my personality to, to want the spotlight. So to have to repeatedly talk about myself was just, it was a lot. <laughs> um, but I, you know, I've, it's kind of, it's been a good thing, you know, showing that there's not a whole lot of females out in this industry right now, you know, our numbers are up to five. So we're doing pretty well now, <laughs> but, uh, but it was absolutely overwhelming. Um, but I think it's just an important thing to, to show that, you know, this is not very, you know, this is a heavily male dominated, but, but females can do it too. I know you guys did like a seminar. I don't not like Ted talk. I'm, I don't know the right word for it. Um, but a, a couple of weeks ago at, at the time we're recording this, uh, how much of like a, a society have, have you guys become as the, five minor league baseball broadcasters that are female? Uh, it's been incredible. And it was really special because uh, at that time of the uh, panel discussion, I guess we could call it, um, of the event, uh, I had not met half of the the other female broadcasters. I'd only met Kirsten and Melanie. And so to meet Jill and Mara in person after, you know, talking on Twitter a whole bunch and, and listening to them, it was just really cool to to talk and get to know them and hear their experiences of their first year in minor league baseball and and uh, and kind of commiserate together. Um, I, I think that we definitely have gone through unique experiences only because of our gender, um, which you know it, you have to talk about that stuff with somebody that's that's gone through it because no one really understands it like we do. Right. Um, and so it was it was just really it was priceless just to be around them for the 24 hours. And, and they're just fantastic. They're hilarious. They're very knowledgeable about baseball and um, they're just fantastic people. I know there was an NPR story that said that you once interviewed for a job where they said they would never hire you because you were female. Um, since that has happened, uh, obviously, multiple people have hired you. Um, <laughs> what have you learned about being in minor league baseball um, like what has the learned experience of being a female broadcaster in minor league baseball been like now that you've been exposed to it from the standpoint of um, what you were expecting and maybe what you didn't expect in, in both a positive or negative direction? Um, well, I definitely did not expect to hear that in a job interview. Um, <laughs> and that, that definitely kind of pushed me on my heels a bit of me doubting myself if I would ever be able to even make it into minor league baseball. Um, but, you know, the legend's, didn't look at me as a female that never for, for the legends, that was the first time I'd never uh, even had the gender question or brought topic up. brought up that's at cool. all. That's yeah. Really cool. And so, so that's with them. I was like, okay, you know what? This is fantastic because I'm not being hired because of my gender, you know, kind of used as the token and, and it kind of used as, as a really cool PR piece. Um, and it's just, I was just the best person for the job. So that was extremely refreshing. And so I knew going in with Lexington that that would be a great spot to land. They also have a female owner and 50% of their front office was female as well. So um, once I got into minor league baseball, I was pleasantly surprised at the support that I got, especially, you know, once it was announced and the people who did reach out to me on Twitter or Facebook, supporting uh, me a hundred percent and everything like that. I was just kind of really welcomed, which was, you know, incredible. And the minor league baseball community is, is just so 
nice and kind to each other. Um, so once I got into it, it was great. Um, I really haven't heard anything negative based on the gender thing ever since I've, you know, been in minor league baseball and, and then it was the same thing with Portland. They never brought up my, my gender or anything like that. And, um, again, in a great front office here in Maine and, um, Granted, we're all working from home, but <laughs> there's some, uh, some they great seem wonderful. There yeah. Too. <laughs> yeah, they seem great. <laughs> um, what is bringing you to Portland now? Um, what is it like for you um, making inroads in a new team, in a new community? Uh, what are the things that you have to do to get yourself situated? I know like you used to drive like Uber and Lyft in Lexington, and that was cool because you would get to talk to people that lived in Lexington. Um, not that you would want to make a habit of doing that in every new city you go work in, but, but what are the things that, that you do when you get a new job to prepare yourself for, um, something you don't know about yet where you're coming from somewhere where you were really well acclimated in everything that was around you? Uh, well, I mean, I, I get my apartment and everything set up as soon as I can, just so I have that kind of home base. And then, um, I typically somehow, I don't, I still can't explain it, but I get lost even using GPS and Google maps. Um, <laughs> Join the so, club. Me too. Yeah. So like, you know, when I was searching for toilet paper, um, you know, and going to my eighth store in Portland, trying to find toilet paper, <laughs> I kept getting lost in the city and I would just end up, you know, next to the ocean and, you know, would kind of see different neighborhoods and, and that kind of thing. So Portland is, has been fantastic. And, you know, it's a, it feels like a, a smaller city. So it's, it's really great in that kind of sense. It's not a massive metropolis, uh, which is really cool. But, um, you know, then from that point, you know, I really just try and find out as much as I can about the team and, and really get to know my front office staff um, pretty well, which right now in the climate, it's kind of difficult to do via email and text messages and, and uh, conference calls, but um, you know, you're going to spend so much time with them. So I, I try to, you know, you know, I might be the new person on the block, but um, try to get to know them pretty well before the season starts. Um, and then it, from there, it's just all about researching and, and getting prepared for the season, um, whether it's, you know, game notes ready, stat packs and that kind of stuff. What did you uh, what did you learn, by the way, by by, by driving? Like, is there anything that you um, picked up on people that you met or things you learned about culture? Um. Like driving Lyft or Uber, just yeah, driving around. In yeah, yeah, like be, be, well, I guess, I guess in general, but um, but I, Uber and Lyft being in a community, and like, how did that put you in touch with the people that were listening to you? Um, I, you know, I kind of used it as a different type of like interview and tried to just, you know, it's a good challenge of like talking to literally every kind of person. Um, which I think if you're going to be a journalist and and be, you know, interviewing people, I think that that can only help you because you're kind of thrown curveballs every time somebody gets in the car, whether they actually want to talk to you or not. Um, but I mean, it, it was just really entertaining um, whether I was picking up, you know, college kids from a party or, or adults thinking that I was too young to know who pink was, um, <laughs> which was a true story. Um, and so like different things like that, I think I just was put in different situations and, uh, you know, of course with Lexington and we talk about bourbon and, and horse racing <laughs> and, and that kind of stuff. Um, I wouldn't always say that I was with the legends just because I wanted to see what they wanted to talk about and, and see what, what was kind of unique to Kentucky. That's really cool. Um, a couple of questions we, we wrap up with everybody on. Um, so, uh, if you had no information in front of you, outside of like rosters and statistics like the basic so assume you're showing up with like a stat pack and that's it um what is the one other critical piece of information that you most need 
to have a successful broadcast? Oh, that's a great question. Um, oh, man, I don't even know. I think for me, it would have to be bios on the players. Does that count? Sure. Yeah. Just kind of, you know, make it a little bit more of a, a meteor broadcast with just numbers. Fair enough. No, that works. Um, how about the one thing you do on a regular basis to improve as a broadcaster? Uh, I try to listen to myself as painful as it can be. Um, I think that, you know, I think that listening to yourself is, is invaluable at this point. What do you get from that? Or what are you listening for? What's most important when you do that? Just making sure that I'm not like rushing through calls and, and making sure that I'm, I'm still talking at a normal pace that people can understand and I'm not getting too ahead of myself. And then also making sure that, that I, you know, relay the score as much as I can. Um, that's a big thing as well. How often do you listen back? I try to do at least maybe one, one to three times a week, um, depending on how many games we get in. Um, and then, uh, last thing is, and I, I guess this kind of brings us back to where we started, but if, if there's one or two people you listen to, um, most that have influenced you over the course of your career, who would they be and why? (laughs) <laughs> well, uh, obviously my grandfather, that's the easy <laughs> answer. Um, but I would also say Eric Nadell of the Texas Rangers. Okay. Um, he was the voice. I mean, he has been the voice of the Rangers throughout my entire life um, and has now become a fantastic mentor for me. Um, so I'd say, I'd say Bill Mercer and Eric Nadell. <laughs> awesome. Uh, Emma, how do people find you on social media or on the radio whenever that does happen um, and, uh, <laughs> and get more Emma Tiedemann in their life? Uh, so on Twitter, it is at Emma Teeds, T-I-E-D-S, nickname to make my last name a little bit easier on, easier on people. Fair enough. Um, and then, I mean, if and when baseball starts up again, <laughs> um, I guess the easiest way is just uh, heading over to the Portland website, and uh, that'll direct you to kind of whatever medium you want to watch or listen uh, to games on. That is Emma Tiedemann joining us here on Play by Playcast. Her grandfather, by the way, uh, Bill Mercer, if you want to scroll back through episode 105 of this podcast a couple of years ago, uh, Bill Mercer was on. Do go check that one out as well if you're new to the pod or if you just missed that episode. Bill Mercer, episode 105 of PXP Cast. Midweek pod today with Emma Tiedemann, so we are back at it in just a couple of days' time. We will talk to you on Friday when Alex Birchie, senior coordinating producer at Big Ten Network, is our guest. We'll dive into his perspective and his world. It's a fun conversation. Look forward to seeing you Friday. This is PXP Cast. My name is Joel Gadet, and we are out. That will do it from St. Louis, where the score is inconclusive.